Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for this privilege, this honor, this gift of gathering together to fellowship in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we're so very grateful for this building, for this congregation, for the spiritual gifts that have been revealed to individuals to keep this ministry going, uh, to bring glory to you. Father, thank you for the privilege also of receiving your gospel and that we might bring it out, not just locally, but on the missionary field as well. Thank you for that privilege, Father. We pray for those that are ill in the congregation, Father, that especially desire to be here with us this morning but cannot be for a multitude of reasons. Father, we just pray that you heal them, and if not physically, um, spiritually, emotionally even, so that they might find peace, a peace that your Son has given them. We pray for those without said peace, without hope, those still lost in this world, that before it's too late, that they might receive the free gift of salvation through your Son. We are most grateful and thankful for our Lord's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a morning like this even a reality. We ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, fantastic series. Who will separate us from the love of Christ this past week? The Spirit had a lot to say about peace. For starters, we know from the very mouth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we have been given His peace as believers. And in a very intimate moment with His disciples, Jesus spoke. Go to John 14.23. John 14.23. He speaks of this supernatural peace. A peace that is not available to those that are not in Christ Jesus. John 14.23 Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And then he says this wonderful thing. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And that's good guidance for all of us thousands of years later. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Remember in um, 1 John 4, 18, 
there is no fear in love. And so you see this sort of play off of love and fear uh, that's in view here as well. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Up here on the board, I'm going to rob from John MacArthur on this one. My peace I give to you. Quote, at the individual level, this peace unknown to the unsaved secures composure in difficult troubles, John 14.1, dissolves fear, Philippians 4.7, and rules in the hearts of God's people to maintain harmony, Colossians 3.15. Go to John 14.1, should be right around the corner. John 14.1, again, at the individual level, this peace unknown to the unsaved secures composure in difficult times, that's John 14.1, says, do not let your heart be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. Do not let your heart be troubled. So it secures composure in difficult troubles, dissolves fear, go to Philippians 4, 7, dissolves fear, Philippians 4, verse 7. So you see this peace does a lot more than we might even think it does. Certainly more than the so-called peace the world uh, provides its own. Dissolves fear, Philippians 4, 7. Says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And as I've taught you in the past, all comprehension points to human ability, uh, surpasses all of that because it's supernatural uh, in that Comprehension in view there is the natural comprehension, the peace of God which surpasses all natural comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then, of course, he says, in the rules in the hearts or rules in the hearts of God's people to maintain harmony. Go to Colossians 3.15. Colossians 3.15. It's funny because people that are not at peace are always at each other. If you have two people that are at peace within themselves, they don't, they're not at each other all the time. It's when someone loses said peace. It's when someone doesn't have peace when the attacks come, when one is now trying to devour another. Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body and be thankful. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Again, the point on the board, my peace I give to you from John, the Gospel. At the individual level, this peace unknown to the unsaved secures composure in difficult times, dissolves fear, and rules in the hearts of God's people to maintain harmony. <clears throat> we ought never forget about this peace and I was thinking about this, not just for its value to us in time, but also that when it is evident in us to others, it brings glory to God. In other words, we tend to say, I want peace because I'm sick of being miserable. But it's bigger than that. When we reveal peace in time, we bring glory to God. Other people are looking at us and saying, how does that person have peace? Oh, they have Christ. And it's a revelation of uh, this peace that Jesus Christ grants to his own. 
And that brings glory to God because it's beyond all human or natural comprehension what it can do. And so there's a ripple effect. Uh, up here on the board, Ephesians 2.10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Again, for all the world to see, that Greek word theatron, uh, we're on a stage, so to speak, for the rest of the world to see. Uh, and we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And so we're on full display. Whether or not we like to think that way is not the issue, uh, but the point the Spirit's making is when we have peace, and that peace is on display, uh, it says something to those around us. Here's another translation of Ephesians 2.10. I'll give you the amplified up here on the board. For we are His workmanship, His own master work, a work of art, created in Christ Jesus, reborn from above, spiritually transformed, renewed, ready to be used for good works, which God prepared for us beforehand, taking paths which He set so that we would walk in them, living the good life which He prearranged and made ready for us. In other words, all of this is to God's glory. And when we exhibit or illustrate peace, God is glorified. Up here on the board, just some perspective from this past week. We are, quote, lights in the world, that's Philippians 2.15, that have been prepared before the foundation of the world for good works. And that's Ephesians 2.10. We're lights of the world prepared for good works. And so God wants to bring glory to Himself. He wants you to have His Son's peace, the peace that Jesus spoke of, because He is glorified by it. All of this, by default, points to the supernatural act of sanctification. If you're not sanctified, you won't have this peace. And to whatever degree you are sanctified, experientially, progressively, in time, to that degree you will have more peace. So knowing these things fosters peace in our hearts. We no longer, let's say, strive the wrong way. I know a lot of people, Christians even, that strive the wrong way. I've done it. That strive the wrong way. I want peace, so I'm going to make these changes. It's always I, 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 I will, you know. I will make changes. I will do this different. I will do that. And they're missing the point because they're using human rationalism, human sensibilities even, human faculties, not supernatural, human power, if you would, to try to achieve said peace. And we try, how many things do we try in life? Oh, I'm going to change my this, or I'm going to change this in my life, or I think if I just had this one thing in my life, I'd be peaceful. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Because like Paul said, I've learned to go with or without. It doesn't matter. Peace is transcendent. You either have it or you don't. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are. As came out in our messages this past week, there are no shortcuts. God gives man this thing called life and this thing called time, which no man can get around or rush through. And no matter how difficult it may seem at times, it's an act of His grace. It's an act of grace. He gives us life and He gives us time. 
And then he sanctifies us and he reveals certain things to us along the way, which is all grace. So remember uh, now our series title, Who Will Separate Us from the Love of Christ? As we know, we get this from Romans 8.35. And to echo uh, MacArthur's point earlier on that same vein of thought, do not despair. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And this came out this past week as well. Do not despair. A person abiding in the cradle of Christ's love shall not despair. Psalm 34, 17 to 18. It's when we lose our perspective, a.k.a. also known as, abiding experientially that we lose our peace and enter into the horribleness of despair. It's so easy to lose our perspective. And when we lose our perspective, we lose our peace. And the inverse or the opposite of peace is despair. Psalm 34, 17 and 18 appear in the board. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. This was the point in our study on Thursday where the Holy Spirit stopped and took pause with us. As a rule of thumb, it's true. A believer ought not to spare. It's, um, strictly speaking, there's a certain perplexity and desperation. I mean, it almost seems like an oxymoron, the despairing believer. Um, as a rule of thumb, a believer ought not despair because we haven't been perfected yet, and we should know that. We know we will experience desperation from time to time then. Since we know, the Bible tells us, we are not perfected yet experientially. So this was that sort of softer statement, this balanced statement that the Spirit brought out on the topic of desperation, uh, that we ought to know that we should not despair as a rule of thumb, but since we haven't been perfected yet, we will despair from time to time. The beauty of salvation is that we've been made new, positionally perfected, as this past week's blog highlighted. So we may rightly have the confidence that we shall never be permanently desperate. That's true. We shall not ever be permanently desperate. Up here on the board. A believer's position in Christ guarantees that despair will never be permanent. Despair will never be permanent. Now listen, the best the kingdom of darkness is able to do is to trick a believer into thinking their desperation is permanent. That you're stuck for good. There's no way out. How could you possibly get out of this situation? How could you possibly have any peace in this situation? Your desperation, my friend, is permanent. And once you give up, then what does the kingdom of darkness do? Oh, by the way, but I have a solution for you. And then it starts offering all these worldly solutions, like a little carrot. And people, you know, like the rabbit. They go chasing the carrot down the road that they've been down a hundred times in the past, because they haven't learned their lesson yet. They crash and burn over here somewhere, and then they come sort of crawling back, so to speak. So the best the kingdom of darkness is able to do is trick a believer into thinking that desperation is permanent. But that's just a ruse. 
perspective delivers us immediately. The Word gives us this. That's the beauty of the Word of God. If you lose your perspective, you, you stop becoming miserable. You, you think, you know, you, you're, just, you're desperate over something. Then read the Word of God. That's what it's for. It's there to deliver you, to wash you as it describes itself. Let's read Paul's encouragement on this once again. It's such a beautiful passage. Go to 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. Second Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. And you see that sort of dichotomy um, that I think a lot of people forget about. Just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. In other words, we know that we're going to suffer for His name's sake. He told us this Himself. If they persecuted Him, they're going to persecute us. But because God is able to be glorified in the process, He's also going to comfort us. He's also going to give us a supernatural peace that delivers us from said suffering. And I think sometimes we get stuck. On Thursday, I was sort of, you know, the point A, point B thing. We get stuck in the middle because the kingdom of darkness says, no, you'll never find comfort. You will always be desperate. You will always be depressed. You will always be downtrodden. You will always be this. Blah, 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 blah. And unfortunately, there are even Christians that agree that life is nothing more than pure suffering all the time. And that's just a false doctrine. That's not true. That's not what the Bible says. Unless Paul here is wrong. And I'm not going to say that Paul is wrong because that's the inspired Word of God. For just as the suffering of Christ are ours in abundance so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our suffering, so also you are sharers of our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. And that's Paul's way of intimating. Listen, it happens to the best of us. You get pressed down so hard, sometimes you become desperate. There's a certain despair there. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope. And he will yet deliver us, um, you also joining in helping us through, our prayers, through your prayers, so that thanks may be given by many persons on, behalf, on our behalf for the, uh, for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers 
of many. And so you have, again, these things are side by side. You have suffering and you have comfort side by side. God would be cruel just to make us suffer. And if you think that's God, then you don't know God. At least not the God of the Bible. That's some, I don't know, existential version of God. Well, I've suffered my whole life. Well, maybe that's the problem. Maybe you're stuck. Maybe you make bad decisions. Maybe it's all a function of you and your decisions and your perspective and your living a lie that was handed to you by the kingdom of darkness. And, and how does that happen? Just to get practical for a moment, let's face it. A lot of times we get handed this lie from our parents or those that love us. That's how dysfunction junction works. That's why it's so important. I mean, remember our lessons on family not that long ago? That's why it's so important. If you're in a, if you're in a, a chain of dysfunction, if your family's like just horribly dysfunctional, at some point with the truth, you have to put a stop to it in your own soul. At some point, you have to put a stop to it in your own soul. It doesn't mean blame your parents for giving you lies. It means taking what the Word of God says as truth and being delivered. Stop accepting a lot. And I know they're, they're ingrained in us. And sometimes, frankly, on a practical level, we're handed these, they're like anchors around our necks. We're handed these burdens from the ones that are supposed to take care of us. The ones who are supposed to have raised us up in the faith. And because families are so defunct, there is none of that happening. Anyways, there's a balance here. And if you're stuck and if you're lopsided, uh, all I can tell you is that's not from God. That's the point. So again, don't beat yourself up on this. So the balance statement up here on the board we all experience some level of despair from time to time, no matter how mature we might think we are in Christ. For example, 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 11, that was Paul intimating even his own desperation. No matter how mature we might think we are in Christ, we all have moments of it. So we might say it this way, and I don't want you to make this a doctrine per se, ebbs and flows are, quote, normal in the process of sanctification. What's not normal is apostasy. It's one thing, that's the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. It's one thing for a believer to struggle, to have doubts, you know, their faith is a little bit shaky, and, you know, they, it's ebbs and flows. They, they be, maybe even become depressed for a little while, and they, you know, and, and the Lord delivers them out of it, this kind of a thing, because they know in their heart, their new self, that the only way uh, two deliverances with Christ, and they always come back. That's the difference between a, a believer and an unbeliever, though. An unbeliever never comes back. An unbeliever, that's an apostate, a person who just leaves the faith. That's the difference. So, let me put it this way, as a form of encouragement. If you're inextricably drawn back to Jesus, and you can't even explain it, 
If you're inextricably drawn back to Jesus, no matter how ridiculous you currently look in the mirror, you know what I can say with the confidence of the Bible at my side? You are a saved individual. Period. If you know, and there is no doubt that no matter what, you are going to end up back with Jesus Christ. All I can tell you from the Bible, what the Bible says is that you're saved. Because that's what believers do. We always go back to our Savior. We have times, we have moments of despair even. But we always go back to Him. That is the distinction. One of the greatest tricks the devil will play with us is sowing doubt in us. His agents whisper things like, See, you're a failure. There's no way God's willing to save you. Or, let it go. God doesn't want someone like you in His kingdom. You're a bad apple. Those are lies. If you're in Christ Jesus, know that these are all lies from the pit of hell, meant to thwart God's good work in you, to His glory. Satan knows full well the principle I taught at the start of this message, that God is glorified when His children express a supernatural peace that surpasses all human comprehension, that overcomes all deviant attempts to separate them from the love of Christ. Peaceful people arise to the glory of God. Peaceful people arise to the glory of God. Go to Proverbs 24.16. Proverbs 24.16. Proverbs 24.16. God is not glorified by you being in the doldrums. He's glorified when you come out. The flesh takes you back. He raises you up. Proverbs 24.16 For a righteous man falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in time of calamity. The implication is that a righteous man, what? Falls. So in other words, you know, the very best of us, if you want to put it that way, fails. So falling is quote-unquote normal for believers. Not necessarily good or righteous, but normal. Nonetheless, it happens so frequently, again, that we might call it normal. It's normal for us, even the so-called best of us, to fail or fall. And you know what? Falling is just another name for sinning up here on the board. Sin defined means to miss the mark. If you were to look up the uh, Greek word that's translated sin, it would say to miss the mark. That's what sin is, to miss the mark. And it's not just an activity. It's not just something that you do. You do something because you've already missed the mark. Fair enough? You've missed the mark in your heart, let's say, in your soul. And because you've missed the mark, you sin. So sin means to miss the mark. Since God is perfect and we are not, we fall often, even the most righteous among us. So relax. You know what I have to say right now, right? No premeditation. 
That's all I'm going to say. If you know what I'm talking about, then watch Thursday's message. Relax. When you fall, do not focus on the failure, but rather the grace afforded you in the time of need to get back up. Because that's what a believer in Christ always wants to do. I want to go back to my Lord. I've strayed. I want to go back to my Lord. But I'm stuck here, you see. My, my um, wool is stuck in the thicket. I can't seem to extract myself. And God says, don't worry about it. I'll extract you. But isn't it like the thousandth time you've done this? Yeah, no kidding. And my son knew that when he died on the cross for your sins, personally. That you'd be over here again. And you know what? By the time you're done with this life, it's probably going to be another thousand times. Because you're that stupid. Okay, maybe $9.99, because I've got to sanctify you. Only Jesus never fell. I was thinking about this, uh, the fact that we fall, that we fail, that we sin. And I was thinking about motivating factors, godly motivating factors that might be impressed upon us. In you know that moment when you're about to sin and your good conscience and God the Holy Spirit working with your good conscience saying, you know you shouldn't be thinking this or doing this. You've missed the mark in your soul. Let us not give birth to sin. Um, how often do we fall in a vacuum? In other words, most of us fall and we drag people with us. There's, it, there's always, there's, you're never in a vacuum. Rarely. Maybe better asked, how often do we affect others when we fall? Can we agree that it's often enough? Maybe not every time because we fall you know, between our ears. But is it often enough? And if we can agree on that, we can say that when we fall, we usually cause a wake, like a boat on a lake. You know, everything's calm, and then here comes you, and everybody's like, someone trying to enjoy the sun is flipped over in the canoe and, you know, the non-powered vehicles. We usually cause a wake. Well, as the Spirit showing us his forgiveness, we ought to extend that same forgiveness to others. Because the person who goes flying by you in a no-wake zone, in a speedboat, is stupid and, and uh, dumb and self-absorbed and screaming away from Jesus Christ and falling. What about that? Do we paddle real fast and get him? And then give him a piece of our mind? And that's what reconciliation looks like in the family? The Spirit's been showing us his forgiveness, and we ought to extend that same forgiveness to others. For this is yet another practical way for peace, for peace to exist, not just individually, but corporately. Peace cannot exist if you do not have forgiveness. You are affected way too often by others 
and you affect others way too often when you fall and leave bruises and scars on their backs because you fall and you, you scratch their back as they're trying to get away from you. It happens too often. There's no way that peace can exist in that environment unless forgiveness exists. Up here on the board, forgiveness knits imperfect family members of a family together. It fosters the unity of faith as something real and attainable in time. It is a primitive desire even of the one who loves. The person who loves with the love of God is not interested in keeping score. They are interested in the joy of unity in the faith, in a peace that transcends all human comprehension, in knowing that those things bring glory to God. So just to put the contrary out there, are you going to say that you're not going to forgive someone and um, deny God his rightful glory because you want to be stubborn? This is your proposition? I know if I forgive this person and peace is now attained between us, God is glorified. But I'm not going to do it because I'm a stubborn jackass, an unforgiving, unloving tool. And I'm not, I don't care about God's glory. Isn't that the opposite? That is the opposite. Or you say, I don't care. I don't care who's right or wrong. Today it's me, tomorrow it's you, whatever. I just want there to be peace in the family. I want there to be peace in the family because God is glorified as well. Not only are there practical ramifications, there are spiritual ones. Godly ones. So again, forgiveness knits the family together. On the flip side, religious people are unforgiving because they are unloving. They are unloving because religion has never saved a soul. They are selfish because that is their very nature. Go to Ephesians 2, 3. Ephesians 2, verse 3. Religious people on the flip side are unforgiving because they are unloving. They are unloving because religion has never saved a soul. They are selfish because that is their very nature. We are born selfish because we are born fleshly. That's why we need to be born again, not upgraded. Born again completely because the nature that we're born with is completely uh, bad, ungodly, unholy. Ephesians 2.3, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. So you see, we're born, our nature is born unforgiving. Oh, we may go through the moral exercise of forgiveness, but in that moral exercise of forgiveness, underneath it is an economy. There's a tallying. There's a tit for tat. There's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It's like, I'll forgive you because, but I have a memory now. I'll forgive you, but you owe me. I'll forgive you, but this means this. That's the flesh. The flesh always has ulterior motives, even with forgiveness. I'll forgive you because, crap, we're supposed to be going to 
Disney World. And if we go fighting, this is going to stink. So I'll forgive you just so we can reconcile, so we can have at least a good time because I'm cheap and I don't want to spend $5,000 on a vacation and have to live with a witch. Or vice versa. That's self-serving forgiveness. You see? There's always some self-serving fleshly motivation for the unsaved. They, they mask it. They um, primp it up. And they, they make it sound morally good. And by world standards, since the world is completely fleshly, it is morally good. But it's not what God's after. I know I've taught you about spiritual economies in the past, but let me give you a quick refresher course up here on the board. The fleshly economy. Every economy uses currency for the exchange of goods and services. The currency the human flesh uses by nature, Ephesians 2.3, is anti-grace. Nothing is free. It's anti-grace. Nothing is free. That's the economy that we're born into. That's all that our flesh understands. Every economy uses currency for the exchange of goods and services. The currency the human flesh uses by nature is anti-grace. That's the currency. If it was a physical currency, it would say anti-grace. Nothing is free. That is all we really ever need to know about man's natural estate in his flesh. It really is. Everything else in terms of his thinking and his behavior can be derived from that one principle on the board. Everything else, the stuff that he does, the stuff that he thinks, uh, everything can be derived from that one principle, that he's functioning in anti-grace. That, an, that grace itself is distasteful. Wouldn't dream of actually doing something without any strings attached. Wouldn't dream of it. It doesn't, it's, it's not capable of thinking that way. And therefore, it never has the transcendent peace that comes with true grace. I mean, what's more gracious than to say, I guess I don't care if they ever say, I'm sorry to me, I'm, I've already forgiven them, I'm on my way, I sleep at night. See, a fleshly person has a real problem with that. They haven't even apologized to me. I think some people can go like to their deathbed like that. That's an epit- the epitome of the fleshly economy. There's always going to be a payment. You have to pay me an apology for me to be settled. Oh, man, what a slave you are. Right? How often do we get faulted against? All day, every day. So I guess in that economy, you're going to be one miserable person. Well, that's okay. Here's, here's what the kingdom of darkness says. Here, self-medicate. This is all we ever need to know about a man's natural estate in his flesh. Everything else. In terms of his thinking, behavior may be derived from this one principle. It's because this one principle is what constitutes his motivation. And as the Bible clearly teaches, motivation is what counts. Back to our point then, up here on the board. Every economy uses, uh, uses uh, currency for the exchange of goods and services, the currency the human flesh uses by nature is anti-grace. Nothing is for free up here on the board. In the fleshly economy, forgiveness 
is a bargaining chip. Forgiveness is a bargaining chip, a debt to be paid. Oh, if I'm going to forgive you, I better get something out of this. Oh, a good trip to Disney would be a good start. And you better buy me some Mickey Mouse ears while we're there, just so you know. You better make it up to me. I hear that all the time. Oh, you really, you really got under my skin there, honey. No sex for you for one month. What the? What's wrong with people? Seriously, what is wrong with people? In the fleshly economy, forgiveness is a bargaining chip, a debt to be paid. That's because without grace, the expression of godly love, nothing is given freely. The byproduct of abiding in this economy is the introduction of something truly corrosive to the truth that sets us free. And let's call it subjectivity. Now focus, concentrate, subjectivity. Specifically, who gets to define the global scale of values? Okay, if there's going to be an economy here where nothing is free, who gets to define the global scale of values? You? Me? Gandhi? Mother Teresa? Who gets to define the global scale of values in this economy? Because it's totally subjective. In an age of what we'll call existentialism, everybody stakes a claim to defining said scale of values for themselves. Isn't that how it goes? Well, you can have your God, I'll have mine. And they can have their God, and they can have their God. And there's no standard, you see. And we can all just make ourselves gods and set our own standards. So if I want to punch you in the face because that's payment for your wronging me, it's good. We're even. Stand there, let me drop you. And I'll be good. Well, who gets to decide that? Maybe I think it's a pinch in the arm. Maybe I think that's fair. Who gets to define these things? You see? It's corrosive. There's no peace because everybody's lopsided and everybody's trying to set scales of values for themselves. The result? Conflict, no love, no peace. We believers, on the other hand, have a divine scale of values. That's what I love about the Word of God. The Word of God says this is the scale of values. And this divinely set. And Jesus Christ has never changed. Not yesterday, today, or never. And so this scale of values settles all accounts, doesn't it? It just says this is the scale of values. So throw all that subjectivity out up here on the board. Proverbs 16, 11, A just balance and scales belong to the Lord. All the weights of the bag are His concern. Go to Colossians 3.12. Colossians 3.12. This is very encouraging Again, a just balance and a scales belong to the Lord. All the weights of the bag are His concern. Colossians 3.12 So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving each other, and that's in the economy of grace. You forgive because that's what you want to do, without strings attached even. Forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. 
Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. If you're unforgiving, you're not bonded. You are not going to be fostering this perfect bond of unity. You will not enduo. You will not put on love. You will not put on Jesus Christ. Same Greek word. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And then look what he says. Let, you see right after this, the same love-peace pair? Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That's how it happens. Put on love, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. We believers have a divine scale of values that induces peace, mercy, forgiveness, all because of one motivating factor, divine love. Divine love. To our previous point, again, on forgiveness, this is the point the Spirit's making here, sort of a sub-point. Forgiveness knits imperfect members of a family together. It fosters the unity of faith as something real and attainable in time. We just saw that in Colossians 3. It is a primitive desire of the one who loves. The base primitive of the Holy Spirit, or excuse me, of the Holy God and the Holy Spirit of the universe is that love reigns supreme. It's the law that if you're living in love, you uh, meet the divine standard of all the other laws ever listed, every command on how to treat yourself, others, etc. Again, the base primitive of the holy God of the universe is that love reigns supreme. As such, in the divine economy, our currency is grace. And so the only accounting, let's call it, the only tallying, the only columns being kept, the only accounting done in a grace economy is for the sake of gratitude. That's what makes it so special, so unique, so utterly fulfilling. In God's grace economy, we are never in debt. For all our debt has been forgiven. The only indebtedness, quote-unquote, we have that the Bible talks about is our righteous sense of gratitude. That's about it. Be grateful for everything because that's what's pleasing to God. That's the only indebtedness we really have because God's not looking for payback for His grace. Nor should we, likewise, be looking for payback for grace given and shown to others, like forgiveness. Like an act of forgiveness. Again, the only indebtedness we have that the Bible talks about is our righteous sense of gratitude, for we ought to be forever grateful for all that God's done for us. Hence the passage, one of my favorites, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Paul wrote about the source of his gratitude up here on the board, 1 Corinthians 15, 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And I think I'll close with this. If you're struggling with any of this, let me help you see, again, what's going to separate, who's going to separate us from the love of Christ. If you're struggling with any of this, let me help you see more clearly. Consider your life as a whole and that God made no mistake in placing you personally smack dab in the middle of it. 
Life itself has the ability to reveal to us all sorts of things. And while doing so, we learn of God's supreme plan for the ages and that everything really does work out for good for those who love Him. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank You so much for the privilege of studying Your Word here this morning. Thank You so much for sanctifying us in time, for revealing what true love is, grace, mercy, forgiveness, and most of all, love. We ask for blessings as we take the things we've learned out to a lost and dying world that needs these things so desperately. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.